Welcome to episode 52 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Joshua Novi, Secretary-Treasurer of the RSA Board of Directors, speaks with Dr. Michael Bond, Associate Professor and Residency Program Director of Emergency Medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and faculty of the AAEM Written Board Review Course. Today, Mr. Novi and Dr. Bond discuss spinal epidural abscesses. Aloha, everyone, and welcome to this special episode of the AAEM RSA podcast series. We're recording from San Diego at our 24th Scientific Assembly. I'm Joshua Novi, and today I'm joined by Dr. Michael Bond, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and Program Director for the Emergency Medicine Residency at University of Maryland. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Bond. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Dr. Bond, my patient is a 54-year-old male patient with HIV and a history of intravenous drug use who's presenting today complaining of low back pain for three days that has worsened today, developing left lower extremity weakness about five hours ago. My patient's febrile, but otherwise his vital signs are normal. His strength is five out of five in all extremities, except his left lower extremity, which is two out of five. The remainder of the exam is non-focal with no other findings. I'm chiefly concerned that this patient may have a complicating spinal pathology, and given their immunocompromised status, I suspect this may be an epidural abscess. Since this patient is clinically stable, I think an MRI will not delay necessary care. What are your thoughts? Well, this patient has so many red flags that we think of with back pain that he definitely warrants an MRI and further evaluation. At this point, I think you can definitely proceed with the MRI, and you have to proceed with the MRI because nobody else is going to do anything else for you without imaging to know where they're going and what's going on. So neurosurgery is not going to just empirically take somebody to an OR thinking it's an epidural abscess without images. Now, what I would start doing, though, is start probably antibiotics right away because there's a neurodeficit present. If you thought the patient just might have osteomyelitis, fever, back pain, no neurodeficits, then typically they'll ask you not to start antibiotics so they can get a bone biopsy, know exactly what the bug is, and know how long the antibiotic treatment would be on the appropriate antibiotic. But in this case, I would say antibiotics absolutely need to be started on the way to the MRI suite. And I'd probably even get my neurosurgeons involved early on so they could do an exam and know that the MRI is coming if you have that capability. If you're at one of those facilities that doesn't have MRI, which seems like a lot don't, then I probably wouldn't delay transport at all. Or if you had to wait for your MRI tech to come in and you wanted to have a definitive answer, if he's got neurodeficits, I'd transfer him out immediately um, and not even wait for the MRI to be done, just try to expedite it at the next hospital. The big thing would be to ensure that the other hospital actually has the capabilities to do it. So me working at a receiving hospital, I worry about that a lot about accepting a patient to my facility that won't fit in my MRI scanner or would need sedation and I don't have those capabilities because I'm kind of make a promise to you as the transferring doc that I have all the capabilities to take care of this patient. So a lot of times I'll even ask more questions and transfer than seems out of the normal, like how big are they to make sure they'll actually fit in my donut hole of the MRI machine. We don't have an open one per se. And some people think that because university hospitals have big tables that we can take a lot of weight on our MRI tables, but it's not the weight that's the problem. It's your girth, how big you are. 
So our particular MRI, 18 inches from front to back. So you have to get a ruler out and make sure that from the front of the chest to their back isn't more than 18 inches and then they can fit in the machine. Definitely gets a little tight at times though. So for this guy, I definitely would start antibiotics, broad spectrum antibiotics covering MRSA. And um, since these have an IVDA, I want to cover gram negatives and even potential anaerobes since they tend to clean their needles with their mouth so they can have a mouth flora in it. Um, the HIV status doesn't worry me too much, so we can discuss that in this patient. It's more if they're actually AIDS. So if you're HIV and have a CD4 count of 900, you're not really at increased risk. But if you're HIV with a CD4 count of 150, then you're at more risk. So it's not so much HIV, it's more your total immune status. So I'd almost like to know what a CD4 count was also in order to get a better picture of this guy. Would you want that, let's say I'm an intern, presenting this to you in the ED, in this scenario, would you want me to have uh, that information handy before I present to you, their, uh, their CD4 count? Absolutely, yes. The CD4 count changes everything with the thought process, so absolutely. It's one of my almost pet peeves with some of our patients. We have a big HIV population in Baltimore, and they're always very proud that they're undetectable, meaning their viral load. So that means they're highly active, retroviral therapy is working really well. So the patients all memorize that, but they don't ever know what their CD4 count is. So you could be non-reactive and have a CD4 count of 100 because you're on the way back up. So I sometimes wish the ID doctors would just tell them what their CD4 count is, because that's what every other doctor in the world needs to know, not whether they're non-reactive at all or have no viral load. Yeah, it seems like you could have, you could have a florid viral load, but if, you're, if your CD4 counts are fine, like you're not really at a much higher risk for pathology than if you're, you were bottoming out your CD4. Correct. You're very infectious, but you're not at risk for any of those opportunistic infections at that point. Right. So consider a similar scenario. We have this same 54-year-old HIV patient who's presenting with a low back pain for three days, but they don't have a fever. Their exam is completely non-focal, and they also have intact sensation at the perineum. Does this patient need an MRI, or what are, you, what are your thoughts on this guy, and what do you want to do? So this patient doesn't need, absolutely need an MRI. We need a little bit more information. So him, the CD4 count would be helpful. We would need to know some more social history, like in the first case, the guy injected drugs, this, this gentleman inject drugs, because then that would be two red flags. Do they have any other past medical history, like end-stage renal disease, on hemodialysis, diabetes, have they been on steroids for a while for something, those would all put them at risk. If they've had any GU, GI procedures could put them at risk too. So a little bit more information. But if it's just that, he's only HIV and has had low back pain for three days, afebrile, normal neuro exam where we actually check the perineum, then an MRI isn't absolutely needed, but we should think about spinal epidural abscess because they're at risk. And we can kind of exclude it just by getting a couple of lab tests. Now, no lab test will definitively say you have an epidural abscess, but if you have a normal white count, a normal SED rate, and a normal CRP, C-reactive protein, then the chance of you having epidural abscess is so exceedingly low that I think you've essentially excluded the diagnosis and you can move on. If you want to, because you're worried about other causes of back pain, maybe they get an outpatient MRI. But it's not something I would think would need to be done emergently in the emergency department, and you would have a pretty good airtight case to defend yourself should it ever go to legal, because that's one of the big fears that we have with epidural abscesses. The standard of care almost is that half of them will be missed on their first presentation. 
because they don't present with the classic symptoms that we've been taught all the time. Those classic symptoms present like less than 15% of the time where they actually have fever, back pain, and neurodeficit. Only about 50% of the people actually show up with a fever. So they don't have the classic findings all the time. So if you just have low back pain, which is one of the most common things we ever see, and just because they happen to be HIV positive doesn't mean you have to get an MRI. If you're worried at all and there's not a good like mechanical reason for it, then CRP, SED rate, ESR, all of those normal, then I would be done there, no MRI needed. Okay, so basically a couple, a couple of more advanced labs beyond just general CBC and a BMP. I wouldn't even get the BMP. I don't know how it's going to help me there. Okay, and then when those come back normal, you have safe rule out, document, legal doesn't have a chance against you if they represent. I wouldn't say they wouldn't have a chance because unfortunately sometimes the, the courtroom's like a crapshoot. Okay. Sometimes you crap out, sometimes you win. But you would have a very defensible case that you thought about it, you worked it up in a prudent manner. There's no way we can do MRIs on everybody that comes with back pain. 95% of back pain is mechanical in nature, musculoskeletal. It gets better in six weeks no matter what we do, no matter what medicine you give, it gets better. And then we find all these incidental findings, too, in MRIs, too, that just worry people to death. Then they find out they have herniated discs, and they think that causes every back pain from that they ever have. And most of the time, the herniated discs are just there. They're not the actual cause of the back pain. Okay. So this is a resident student association podcast, so we'd like to make sure that we have some things that the students can benefit from, too. And given this is an advanced clinical topic, could you review what the red flags of back pain are that should require additional imaging or labs in the evaluation of the patient? So there's historical and then physical red flags. The historical ones that we worry about that you should think of other more potential serious causes of back pain that aren't necessarily mechanical musculoskeletal origin are diabetes because they're immunocompromised end-stage renal disease on hemodialysis because they're essentially getting stuck three times a week and becoming bacteremic every time they go on the machine. Um, AIDS or HIV with a low CD4 count. Malignancy, because it could be a malignancy or a metastatic tumor that's in the spinal cord. So it's not necessarily all infectious causes, but there could be other causes of the back pain. Morbid obesity sets them up for infections too. Long-term steroid abuse, one causes osteoporosis, so they could have vertebral compression fractions and then also infections. Infection at a distal site. So if they recently had an ulcer, a cellulitis, treated for an abscess, well, that could have made them bacteremic for a period of time and then settled in the epidural space. So any infection puts you at risk. Recent spinal surgery is kind of a no-brainer. If they cut into your back, you can get an infection there. And then GI and GU procedures. So if they've had a recent colonoscopy or a cystoscopy, those all put them at increased risks for epidural abscess because you become bacteremic with it. Some people even want to include recent dental procedures, but anything that could have caused a violation can kind of put you at risk for some of the stuff. But most of the red flags that we talk about are actually pretty weak. The history of cancer is pretty strong. Use of corticosteroid use is pretty good. And then when we go into physical exam findings, the things that we have to think of are red flags is one is definitely fever. If you have a fever with back pain, new onset back pain, you've got to start thinking of osteo and spinal epidural abscess. It's got to be there on the list. And then any abnormal physical exam finding. So this is where I see that some docs kind of don't do well when you read their charts afterwards. They're concerned about spinal epidural abscess. They're concerned about some of these red flags, and they do, a, on paper, a cursory neuro exam. 
I'm pretty sure in the room they're doing a really good neuro exam, but what they document is really cursory. And maybe that's because we're all using EMRs now and we just pull in the generic physical exam and we don't edit it. But it would really be great to be able to see that all muscles were tested, quads, hamstrings, plantar flexors, dorsiflexors, good Babinski sign, make sure they have good sensation at the perineum. I'm not going to say that everybody has to do a rectal exam, but they should document that there's good rectal tone, have them cinch up their butt and make sure that there's good tone because that's the very end of the spinal cord. Ideally, see them walk. And then I do more functional testing now. I don't know about you, but I find that when I do back pain testing, a lot of times people don't want to put a lot of effort in because it hurts. Mm -hmm. So I ask them to get up and walk. I make them walk on their tippy toes. I make them walk on their heels, and then I make them squat down and without holding on to anything and then just come back up. Um, and I find that I can get them to do more strength that way than sometimes just lifting their leg off the bed because they are, I don't know if they're doing it consciously or just subconsciously, but they tend to be a little bit more dramatic when you examine them in the bed, where if you get them up and walk them, it tends to be a more accurate depiction of what their true strength is. So I've actually heard of the you know, walking on the heels, walking on the toes. Is there a name for that test? I just call it toe walking, duck walking, okay, um, and then a squat. And then the same thing, I'll typically have them do range of motion when they're standing too, see how far they can flex um, to get an idea of um, what their back pain's like. So really it seems then that a pitfall that a lot of uh, physicians or residents may fall privy to then is not doing a full neuromuscular exam on these patients when they want to rule out spinal epidural abscess. Correct. And part of it is, I think, sometimes from med school and through our residency training, we're trained to start the head and work our way down the body. So even, I'm sure you hear this all in presentations, people start with the H&T exam, the lungs, the heart, belly. Start with what you're worried about first, because that's where you're going to spend most of the time. Most of the time, especially in a busy ED, we get distracted. We're trying to cut corners in time because we're really busy. So if you do the most important thing last, you're more likely to cut corners. So if you're worried, like in a headache patient, that it's something serious, do the neuro exam first. The heart and lung exam is probably not going to change anything you're going to do, so do that one last. But we tend to sometimes do the most important things last, and then we tend to cut it short a little bit because we spent too much time doing the other stuff. I see. I would do the same thing on presentations if you're trying to keep your attending interested. Don't tell me what the AG&T exam is if they have an ankle sprain. Get right to the ankle and let me know if they have any other findings afterwards. Um, kind of cut to the chase a little bit. That's a valuable pearl for anyone who's about to go on their emergency medicine rotation. They're currently on their rotation. Keep that in mind, folks. So I think that's about all the time that we have for this topic today. I want to thank you again for joining us for this topic and hope you enjoy the rest of your time in San Diego. Thank you. It was great being here. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website, www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.